BTB listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's episode. Listen, if this episode inspires you, do me a favor and take five seconds to shoot me a like and subscribe to the podcast. There are several more exciting guests that are in the pipeline, and I just can't thank you enough for your continued support, and let's keep paying the mission forward. Let's get into it. Thanks for checking out today's episode. My interview today is with former quarterback Grant Stucker. He was a high school state champion at Ponderosa and then goes on to play Division I college football at Colorado State. But his power of resiliency is the big takeaway in today's message. He had to sit five years before he was able to take his first snap. And we talked through everything from going to win that state championship in high school to the trials and tribulations of playing college football. He's taken a lot of that skill set into his business and professional world today as a husband and a father, and you're going to be inspired by the path that he took and how he was able to overcome. Let's do this. On today's episode of the BTB Project. Today's guest has one of the most remarkable journeys I've come across as an athlete. His love for football was evident from an early age at Ponderosa High School in Parker, Colorado, which during his high school career, he led his team to a state championship and as a junior, set the school record for throwing yards of 2,400. His excellence wasn't limited to football alone. Throughout his high school years, he proved to be a versatile athlete, earning three varsity letters in football, two in basketball, and another in baseball. It seems that athletic prowess runs in the family. His dad, Pat, was an offensive tackle at Air Force, and his cousin, Lyle, played football at Colorado A&M in the 1940s. Taking his talents to the next level, He played college football at Colorado State University, and as a fifth-year redshirt, he started for the program, and his first win was against the University of Colorado, which he made a significant impact as a quarterback. Grant Stucker, welcome to the BTB Project. Don't be afraid of the dark, be careful with stars. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living out my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign land. It's always fun for me on the BTB project to circle back with people in my life that have been just a tremendous impact and folks that I was able to, to grow up with. And it's just a tremendous honor today to have... Uh, someone that got to go to college up north like I did, but they were in a town called Fort Collins instead of Greeley, and they were doing exceptional things as a football player, and a, a tremendous honor to bring Grant Stucker 
to the BTB project. Welcome, man. Thanks for having me, man. I love the setup you got here. This is awesome. Love the in-person feel. I mean, likewise, you know, I mean, we knew each other in high school and there was, I remember great conversations back then and uh, it's great to finally come full circle here and have a conversation about a lot of it and how all those things have impacted both of us decisions and everything and impacts that have happened to us back then and how that has framed where we are today and the trajectory of where we're going. So no, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And the ability to go back to, you know, as we were talking before we hopped on, I mean, it's been about 13 years since you took a snap in college and a lot of time has passed and I'm a family guy, you're a family guy now. And you know, there's so many things that uh, we experience in in today's life that a lot of the things we experienced as athletes growing up have kind of give us some of those foundational things that we've needed to be husbands and fathers in our lives. And I want to go back actually to, you know, a funny story of when you were in high school and I actually had just graduated and I just remember... Um, you guys getting to that state championship football game. And I can't quite remember where you guys are playing it, but you can definitely fill the listeners in. But I remember not having too much money at that point in my life, and I couldn't get a ticket. So there I was on the outside of the fence trying to jump to see if I could see some maroon helmets, hopefully going towards the uh, the side of the field that uh, allowed them to get a field goal or a touchdown. And I just remember the, the clock strike zero, and you guys were state champions. Grant, I'd love for you to take us back to what it meant to you to bring Ponderosa High School a state championship. Oh, man, 20 years ago. I mean, right. it was his, it's actually a very coincidental podcast because this year they're actually, the Ponderosa is doing a 20-year reunion for the state championship oh, wow. on their 40th anniversary of the school. So I, I want to say it's like August 25th. They're doing like their opening game. They're doing a, a 40th celebration and then a, a tribute to the 20th anniversary of the last state championship that they had. It was at the Stutler Bowl at yes. in Cherry Creek. Yes. That was before the days where they had it at Mile High and <laughs> all the things that the, the kids get to do now. Yeah, Stutler Bowl and Cherry Creek on the old turf. It was like the carpet turf, like Astro turf. So everybody was wearing like, not cleats, right? They were wearing like sh- tennis shoes. Oh, wow. And we never, like, we, we went that whole season never playing on like an Astro turf type field. So it was like everybody had new, new different shoes. Like they were wearing their, their sneakers and stuff. <laughs> It was so. Was everyone trying to like grind down their cleats from Douglas yeah. County Stadium to yeah, be mean, ready for the Settler Bowl? I mean, I'm sure everybody <laughs> had what they were trying to get accomplished there. But yeah, it was. It was. I mean, that that season in his own right was a, was a roller coaster of different things because the opening game of my senior year, um, I got hurt and uh, dislocated my AC joint, no SC joint of my collarbone. And I can't remember if it was my right or left because I did the same thing in, in college, which I think we'll get to. Missed pretty much half the season of that year. And I was just like, I was, you know, it was, it was supposed to be a huge senior year for me. And it just was detrimental. When I came back, you know, we started just winning games and we were putting together a great run. And we started playing just our best football right when the playoffs came. 
and we just felt like we could beat anybody. Just everything was clicking. You know, that's the old wing T, you know, option, triple option offense. That was just like, if you, if you're running it right, everybody's doing their responsibilities. Correct. Like that. You just very few people can beat you. Right. Playing really well. And then our third game was a semifinal game against, uh, Mullen. Oh yeah. And Mullen was unbeaten top team in the state. And they had some killer players. Now, was that when a, Dave Logan was coaching yeah, there? Dave Logan yep. was there. Yeah. And we were gearing up for a game plan that was ready for them. About an hour before the game, it was like blue skies, like green turf at, at uh, Douglas County Stadium. And then a huge snowstorm came in, and it was a blizzard, like a whiteout, could not see the lines <laughs> in the field for the game. Jeez. And so, I mean, that – Definitely served better to our game because we were run and gun, you know, very little pass. And we just reverted back to just being true wing T, no shotgun, no, no trickery or anything like that. And we just like it fit our game plan much better than it fit theirs. I remember looking, it was like third, like start of the third quarter. I think we were winning either seven, nothing or 14, nothing. And we were on our sidelines and there was a bunch of guys that were like huddled around some of the heaters, but like, you know, everybody, there's nobody had coats. It was like, everybody looked like they were in their pads and stuff. And then we looked across the field and every player had like these really nice, like parka over your, (laughs) over your shoulder pads, like, like coats. Yeah. And I was like, we're gonna beat these guys. Like we just like, we're tougher than they are. You mm. know? And I'm sure that that'll rub some people the wrong. <laughs> um, I actually played against some of guys, some guys in that game that I ended up playing with at CSU. Okay. That's but funny. that was a huge, that was a huge moment for us. And right after that happened, when we won that game, we were like, there's nothing, there's no stopping us. We're going to, we're going to go and, and beat. And so we played Overland in the championship game. And it was a beautiful sunny day. We were playing on that Astro turf and we just had a great game plan. I remember the opening drive, we got the ball and it was like a 15 play, like eight minutes off the clock, just methodical drive. Mm. And we scored that first touchdown. I was like, we've got this. We're just going to play our game. We've got this. But it was, it was emotional. I mean, it was like, you know, the culmination, like usually you get to the end, a lot of, seasons no matter what sport you're playing the last game you lose that's the only time in my entire career we played the last game and we won so it's like what what am i supposed to feel like in this moment (laughs) knowing that there's no more football to be played but like we won right it's such so it was like an overwhelming feeling for me at the time to know that we did it like it's that's we as a team came together won a championship for the first time in the school's history and still so yeah it's interesting for me because Growing up, and I know that we're a few years apart, growing up, Grant, I had a lot of people in the strength and conditioning program through Ponderosa when I was coming into high school that, you know, saw my body, you know, 6'1", you know, uh, mid 200 pounds, and they were like, man, that's a that's an offensive or defensive lineman right there, right? So I got, I got pushed pretty hard to play football, and I actually, I played one year of football at Parker Vista. Uh, in middle school and I was I was a long snapper and I just remember it was like second or third game that I played I, I my assignment was to snap the ball and then go down and try to tackle the person receiving the punt and so I snapped the ball I get out of line I'm running down and out of nowhere I get sideswiped 
and my head just hits the ground and big time concussion. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, someone hand me some tennis balls instead of this <laughs> yeah. whole football thing. Right? <laughs> so unexpected. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't like this. I don't like this. <laughs> yes. I ended up pivoting, but you know, it makes me think back though, to just the kind of uniqueness that we had at Ponderosa because I felt like our strength and conditioning program, I felt like the football program, I felt like the wrestling program, just the area of Parker and how we were situated. It was very blue collar. It was very kind of like, uh, you know, put the, put the corn husk in your mouth and put on some Mm -hmm. overalls and Mm -hmm. like get to work. And I just would love for you to speak to as much as it was amazing to win that last game. What did it mean to you to reflect on the process? Because that stuff doesn't happen overnight, man. So maybe you could plant some seeds of what it took as a team to get to that point to be competitive mm-hmm. at the state level. Mm-hmm. No, I think a lot to unpack there, right? I think that all these different things that Ponderosa at the time represented, it was definitely a, like a perfect storm of certain aspects that had come into play at the right times that then did, like for for us as a football team, culminated into this this championship if I could go back just a minute in how I got started yeah in the football world I you know you mentioned that you had had started in the in the Parker Vista which I think I went to the same school but they renamed it Sierra right school right correct yep Uh, even before then I remember the I used to play flag football as a kid like a little kid you know and and um in your intro you know you said that I had developed this love for football at a young age. Wasn't that young. Because <laughs> my love for football got developed in high school for sure. Before that, there was a very questionable relationship with football. So <laughs> when when I was really – I played flag football and a lot of my friends. Like I, I want to say it was when I was in third grade, everybody went into tackle. Mm. And in flag football, I was still, you know, quarterback playing then. When we went into tackle, I was so jazzed to get into doing – tackle football but I learned very quickly that you can't just you have to rely on a lot of other people to protect you to give you time to throw a football and at that age when you're just learning how to stand on a line and block somebody else like there's not a lot of protection that happens so I got hit a lot when I was in third grade and I and I hated it I absolutely hated it I mean it was just like I was never ready for it I would so I, I told my parents like midway through the season, I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't like this football stuff. Now, were you a, were you a Parker Hawks guy? I was Hawks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was Hawks. And then, um, they were like, okay, well, you know, we need to finish the season. Um, you can't quit. You know, I always remember my parents saying we can't quit, mm. but maybe we'll talk to the coach and see if we can like develop some different types of rollout plays for you. So you can take the snap and like actually be running and run, throwing on the run and I was always kind of known as more of a dual threat kind of quarterback where I could use my legs to get out of trouble and I could have some dedicated plays that I am running. So we got through the season, but after that I was like, I'm done. I don't want to play again. So fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, I did not play football. No football at all. No mm. flag football, no nothing. But my, I, my primary sport was baseball and basketball. Gotcha. <laughs> and then when I was in eighth grade, I went from Sierra to Sagewood. And Sagewood was the new middle school feeder to Ponderosa. Yep. And I left 
a lot of friends that I was playing baseball with, basketball with, and previously football with because I wanted to go play sports at Ponderosa. At the time, Chaparral was brand new. Yep. My sister was one of the first graduating classes. She's only a couple years older than me. She's pretty similar to your age. Okay, yep. I didn't, I, for various reasons, didn't want to go through that that program that way. I had other friends that were doing the same thing I was going to do. They had older brothers that went to Ponderosa, you know, like the Tommy Pasks of the oh, world, yeah. the Cody Miley's of the yes. world. And so it, there was always this history and longstanding excellence of football, basketball, baseball, just sports, wrestling was a big, so I knew like the athletic direction under Tim Ottman at the time was just phenomenal. And a legend, by yeah, the way. Legend, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> So I think in the, in the, you know, Colorado sports hall of fame. So I made that decision to open a roll into Sagewood. We were still living in Stonegate in like the Chaparral side of the world. And I, I, my friends were all asking me like, why are you going over there? Why are you going over there? And I just, I told, I didn't know what else to tell them. I told them we're moving over there. Like we're, we're my family's like thinking about moving over there. So I'm, and they were like, Oh, okay. But we never were thinking about it. <laughs> and we never did. My parents stayed in that house for 25 years. And so, <laughs> so I went to eighth grade Sagewood, played baseball and basketball, did a little bit of track, and then um, came into my freshman year at Ponderosa, and I was getting pressured again from a lot of my friends. Hey, you got to come play football. So I was like, all right, I'm going to come play, but I'm not going to be a quarterback because I don't want to do that. Mm. And they were like, yeah, whatever. Like, just come out and try out and play. And I was like, okay. So I went out and made the freshman team. For somebody who, when I was a kid, did not like getting hit – I liked hitting other people. <laughs> it was kind of a f- age where I came into enjoying that kind of contact where I could, in- and I was getting bigger. You know, I was probably around, you know, five ten to six feet when I was a freshman, but, like one of the taller people on the team. And so I was a, I was a linebacker and I was a wide receiver. Wow. And, and I enjoyed it. You know, it wasn't like I had found this new passion though. I enjoyed it, and I was like, yeah, you know, but my passion, I think, was still in baseball. And so um, I'll never forget my sophomore year, Mark Murphy, the offensive coordinator. Oh, yeah. Another legend, right, who really developed that whole offense over there with them. He came up to me, it felt like randomly at school, and he was like, Grant, I understand you used to play quarterback. And I was like, dude, when I was in third grade. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, well, you're, you're, some of your buddies have said that you, you know, you've got a good, good arm, you play baseball, right? You pitch. And he was like, we need a backup quarterback. Our, we, have a, we have a starter. He's a senior. It's Dustin Green. Yeah. We need somebody that's going to be his backup. So, like, why don't you come try it? And I was like, coach, I, I don't, I don't want to go out there and get hit every play. Like, it's just not what I really want to do. And, he, and I never remember he said this. He looked at me. He said, son, this is varsity football. <laughs> You'll be protected. And I was like, okay, okay. it's enough for me. <laughs> it's good enough for me. So that fall, I tried wow. out and um, was Dustin's backup. He Dustin got hurt. They were that was a phenomenal team. So Byron Kiphart was running back. Let's see, Gus Miley was was on that team, and Tyler Crisp, like some really like great offensive lineman names, um, Nicoletto, and Nick actually ended up going to play for BYU. That's right. And I was always like, I was never on the number ones. Like I, I was always taking snaps with the number twos. And that was a phenomenal team. They were undefeated. And we went into playing Arapahoe High School in the game of the week. Because Arapahoe, I think at the time, was undefeated too. 
nine news stuff all over the place. And like, there was a helicopter that flew over at one time and Dustin got hurt in the game. He, he was running the ball down the sideline and got tackled like on his leg. Oh no. And like broke his, like his, the smaller one in his leg, not the, not the big shin bone, but the one that's behind it next to your Achilles tibia or something like that. I think fibula. I don't know. I'm I'm not, I don't know those. (laughs) Didn't pass anatomy <laughs> class. <laughs> didn't, huh? didn't, didn't, didn't pay too much attention. It was a bone that was broken in his leg. So yeah. I went in and I was like wide eyed, like um, and bushy tailed, like just did not. I was scared. I mean, it was like this is serious stuff. All they told me was just get the snap, hand it to Byron. Just get the snap, hand it to Byron. And Byron, like I feel like he ran for two hundred and some odd yards in that game. It was just like we were. He was carrying us on his shoulders. And I think I had like one pass for a screen that we did complete and it was a first down. So that was like my only like really good play of the game. It came down to the wire that we had gone down, scored to go ahead. Yeah. And we were, we were about to, the extra point was going to put us um, three points ahead. And I, I don't think I've ever told Gus Miley this because he was also the kicker. I remember that. But Dustin was also was the holder. Like so the starting quarterback was also the holder. So Dustin's out. Now I'm the one that has to go in and hold for the extra point. At the time, I, we had the little you could put a little T down. Okay. Like a flat T and like you could grab the ball and like elevate the ball so you could actually kick. I don't know if they allow that anymore, but I remember getting the snap and just fumbling like crazy with it. And then trying to put it on the tee. I don't know if I put it on the tee and my hand was definitely in the way when Gus kicked that ball and we missed the extra point. Gus was like, what happened? And I was just like, I don't know, man. I don't <laughs> like, I, I was just so nervous and I couldn't, I couldn't even handle the ball. Um, and so they, Arapaho went down and they had a really good drive and their kicker missed the, the field goal and we won. Wow. And I was like, we, we, we got out of there like by the her hair and our chinny chin chin, right? So uh, the next week, um, I was practicing all with the number ones, and the next week was playing chaparral against all of my old teammates that I just left, you know, two years earlier. And I so I knew a lot of those guys on the other side of the ball really, really well. And they knew where I lived, you know, in Stonegate. So there was a couple of, you know, um, Oh, you yeah. know, pieces of toilet paper around the yard that my parents had to clean up. I wasn't driving at the time, so n- nobody like ransacked my car or anything. But <laughs> you know, I was fifteen. Jeez. We we went out, and I I I'm pretty sure they thought that they were going to put a hurting on us because we lost Dustin, and I like didn't play that great in that first Arapahoe game, and we went out and just and destroyed them. Like it was a it was a blowout. Wow. I mean, and I had a really good game, and it was that game that I was like. I could do this. This makes sense. So it's interesting. You you say <clears throat> third grade, you have this experience where you get hit and you're like, this this might not be for me. And you had, you know, parents and, and people speaking into your life saying, hey, you know, you hold on to this. And then you come to high school and a coach brings you back into the QB world. It's really interesting how life takes these unexpected turns because a lot of people that I've talked to on the podcast who have done just these unbelievable things athletically and in their life, like there's no playbook on how to do it. Right. And I think it's really neat. And I'm excited to hear from you on, you know, that moment where you're playing chaparral and it finally clicks. What, 
did it feel like playing the next game and the game after that? Did you feel like a QB or did you feel like someone that didn't totally love playing QB at that point still? No, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. Just felt like I stepped into somebody else's body that I was like, this is, this is your space now for the next, however long you want it to be. And as long as you are doing the right things to study playbooks, take care of your body, lift weight, like do like do all the things to make sure you're preparing yourself. Like this is yours for a while. I definitely felt like it was like, this is going to be my new love of sport. Like, and that was tough to say because I, I feel like I was a pretty good baseball player. I, if I, I, if I didn't find that in football at that point in time, I, I think I would have really, you know, tried my hand at baseball it just clicked and I was getting a lot of good recognition from a lot of the, the, the teammates. I'm like senior, like Byron, Ren Ross and Dustin green, who like had gotten hurt. And like all these guys that I had looked up to when I was a kid were coming to me saying like, you know, you're a new, you're a leader on this team. Like you're doing all the right things. And it was just like that whole, everything that came together that sophomore year was just like, it, it created this new love for football football. Yeah. And I could now see like, okay, what's the next step of like doing football and like, how do I prepare for the next game? And then how do I prepare us for playoffs and how do I prepare us for off season stuff of focusing on football? Um, and then, uh, and, and the next year of all that stuff. So okay. yeah, it definitely, that was a moment that clicked where I found the new love for that sport. Well, obviously, you know, bringing a state championship to Ponderosa and kind of kind of being on all cylinders and having a good a good team around you led you to a tremendous amount of success in high school. And I want to kind of pivot to post high school recruiting process. And eventually, I know it was Colorado State, which ironically, my my dad went to Colorado State. They back in the day had a men's tennis team. And I remember they made him run a mile six months into the season. And after they made him run a mile, he quit playing tennis. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I would love for you to, to tell the listeners about, you know, being a high school state champion and what that meant for the recruiting process. And was CSU always the school that was high on your radar or were there some other ones you'd like to share? Yeah, I think CSU was always high on the radar, uh, mostly because, at the time, they were ha- they had a ton of success, and they were a local university, right? It was like local state school, and I loved Fort Collins. I mean, just beautiful campus, beautiful scenery, a lot of great people. Um, after we had won, so I guess leading up to all of that, um, one of the things that we had when I was at Ponderosa was our offense was not really known for like a hot, like, a lot of passing, get a lot of stats, get yourself recognized kind of offense, right? We were a run and gun type team. It was a wing T office. We actually incorporated some shotgun and and a little bit of West Coast, but not not a lot that would get you statistically noticed throughout the country. So right. my approach as I was kind of going through the potentials of, you know, with my dad of like, Maybe that next level is a is something that you could strive to to get to, being some type of college football somewhere. 
we started thinking about, okay, well, we can't just focus on our little bubble of preparing for the next season with Ponderosa strength and condition. Like, let's look outside and say, like, let's go to a CSU camp. Let's go to a CU camp, you know, and see what those, like how that goes before my junior year. So I did that and started to see like what it really takes to be in the next level of, of football, meeting a lot of different guys from across the country, understanding like what it truly meant to like study film and like put plays together that were based off of defenses, reading defenses. And so when I came back that junior year and Murphy and I were kind of brainstorming some new plays and stuff, I was like, Hey, I learned all this kind of stuff over at camp. Like, how about we do some of this and that? And he was just like, awesome, dude. He was like, absolutely. That sounds awesome. Oh, wow. You know, like he was, he was very collaborative. Like he's just such a great coach. And so went through that my whole junior year, we won state. Then the following year, you know, that junior year, I had a decent statistical year, but nothing like compared to like the top QBs in the country. YouTube wasn't, wasn't really a thing at the time. Like it was still hard to get recognized unless you were putting up big numbers. So my dad and I put together a list of schools that I would love to go play for in college. And it could be like, you know, the, the, the top 10 schools, yeah. like, you know? And so we were like, these would be really cool. This, so let's go figure out how to go to their camp. Let's introduce ourselves to the coaches. Let's let them see you play in person. And if they would give you a, a legitimate, like, um, tryout to see what that would look like. So we went to, uh, we, we wrote a bunch of letters to a number of different schools. I'm not going to say who all of them are because some of them said, no, we don't, we're not interested. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, obviously I'm CUCSU. Um, Stanford was one. Wow. And the University of Texas was another. Those were the four camps that I went to before my senior year. And I went out to the Stanford camp. I mean, Palo Alto, you were talking about it earlier. It's yeah. a gorgeous campus. I mean, like, there's no better place to be doing anything in life than Palo Alto, Palo Alto unless you're skiing. And met a lot of the coaches that were out there, asked them to, like, give me a legitimate, like, look at if I could, if I was capable of playing here. And the bottom line was yes, but scholarships for your position have already been kind of thrown out there. So you could come out and walk on. And it's, it's likely you could earn a scholarship, but, you know, that's, that's where we are right now. And, you know, same thing happened at University of Texas. We went into, at the time, it was Mac Brown was coaching that oh, team. Yeah. And um, Major Applewhite was the, uh, the quarterback coach. And I went out there and we had, you know, went out there a day early, went and met with Coach Brown and was just like, hey, like, through this camp, like, give me a legitimate, like, look not just like teaching some kid that paid to come to camp how to do certain things that are football, but like, would this kid actually like have a chance to come play for us? And so at the end of that camp, he said very similar things to what happened when we went to Stanford. Like you could play here, but we already have those scholarships sent and filled. You could come and walk on and be a preferred walk on and possibly earn a scholarship for your sophomore year. And I was like, okay, you know, at the time I had a scholarship offer from CSU already. Yeah. So I was like, those two, I was like, I'm definitely probably going to take a scholarship over not. There was a lot of things that were happening with CU at the time. You know, um, Gary Barnett was the head coach and he was going through that huge scandal. Yep. Yep. And it felt like at the time, rightly so, because that was took a large part of their day to day to try to address all of that investigation or whatever was happening. They didn't have a lot of time to dedicate towards me and 
the same time that like somebody like Sonny Lubick coming down to have dinner with my right. family. So, and that's how that whole thing came to pass too with Sonny is, is they had had asked if they could come down to have a conversation with my, me and my family at our house. And we had dinner with Sonny and Mick Delaney and, that's where they were like, we want you to come play with us. And we want you to give you a full scholarship. And I was like, man, this is like, this doesn't get better. Mm. If just some kind of division one program coming into your house and telling your, your mom, like your son yeah. is who we want to, you know, stick our future with. So I didn't commit on the spot, but I was very excited to, yeah, the whole, the whole recruiting aspect of it was I, that, that whole piece of it happened before my senior year. And then I committed right before the start of my senior year. Cause I was like, anything could happen. Right. I could get hurt. And then they may pull the offer, you know? So it was like, if I got hurt, if I accept this offer and I get hurt, is the offer still good? And they were like, yeah, like you can, we'll still honor the offer. Um, you know, we'll rehab you and get everything ready so that you can come back. And some kids actually had that happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's how the whole thing got started at CSU. Wow. You know, we were talking about this before we hopped on is, you know, my journey as a tennis player was not recruited. I took a gap year after high school, trained for, for 13 months, changed my body. And, you know, I, I went on a couple like visits my senior year and I had a couple buddies, one who played at Arapahoe High School who ended up going to Northern Colorado and I went up with him and basically played a practice match with someone that was currently on the team and I just got blown off the court. And at that point, Grant, I was, I was five ten, probably 300 pounds. And the coach at the time was just like, said kind of the same thing, like a, like a Stanford or a UT, but it was like, you know, you could walk on, but all of our scholarships mm-hmm. were filled. And so that's when I took a gap year and spent some time with two coaches from Poland. They spoke two words of English, which was run and the S word. <laughs> and I no, I, I share it as a parallel because, you know, at that point you were, you kind of put in all that work to have an assurance of, listen, you've, you've dealt with injuries in the past. You didn't like to get hit. You wanted someone to say, Hey, if things blow up my senior year, I want, I want some stability here. And two, it's awesome when you have the head coach in your living room and, and that rapport and trust building is starting to happen that's unbelievable. But mm. from my point of view, it was, it was kind of surreal for me to, to think back to taking that risk of walking on, you know, I financially, my parents didn't have the money to mm. pay for school. So I took out a student loan my first year and I told my dad, I'm like, just let me, just let me run with this for one year. And if I, if I can get a scholarship, let me stay in school. Mm-hmm. And he's like, done. And I'll never forget. It was uh, the summer after my freshman year. I played the Colorado State Open, and then I played the Northern Colorado Open. I got to the semifinals of the Colorado State Open, and then I won the Northern Colorado Open. A call from my college coach the night that I won the Northern Colorado Open, and they said 75%. Oh, yeah. Ride scholarship and then 25% academic because Mm -hmm. I was able to tap into that. And I basically took a a journey of development and I want to hit your brain on this because I think we cross paths a little bit with our development and some of the 
high performance training, I mm-hmm. got to spend some time with a guy by the name of Lauren Landau. Oh yeah. And Lauren at the time was working with a guy named Kellen D'Amico. Mm-hmm. He's also a Parker guy. Yep. One junior Wimbledon. And I started learning about my body mm-hmm. and at my peak, man, my junior year of college, I had the most wins on my team. I had the most wins for a division one program at UNC. Cause we went from D two to D one and I was playing at 9% body fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in the best shape of my life, but I'd love for you to, to talk about, you know, making that commitment to CSU. And as you said, college is another level mm-hmm. of football. What were you doing after high school to get your body ready for that? That's a good question. I mean, and I think back to like high school football in comparison to what you go into when you're playing division one college football at any level, it's, it's, it's a business. I mean, Mm. division one college football is a business and you know, the, a lot of times the highest paid person, the highest publicly paid person in the state is the college football coach. Right. Um, right. So it's it's a it's a serious thing for them to perform, and their performance relies on your performance. And so it's like it's it it takes a little bit of purity out of the game. I mean, I remember I'll actually fast forward several years after my college career. I went back to Ponderosa just to like see see the game, and I coached for a little bit after I was done. And one of the things I told those kids when they were playing some of their last games as a senior, I was like, guys, enjoy this because this is the last time the sport is really pure. Mm. If your coaches are not here to be paid, your coaches are here because they love this game and they love to coach. But after this, if you have the opportunity to go play in college football, like the purity of the game starts to wither away and the business of the game starts to come into play. And so it's, it's taken very, very seriously and has to be taken very seriously from not only like the players, but also the program. So the program sets you up to say, Hey, we've committed to you. Now it's your turn to commit to us. Mm. Summer workouts are you're voluntold to do. do. (laughs) Right. So that summer before your freshman year, it's like, you better have a really good excuse why you would not be here. You know, and, and we've got to know that you're doing all the right things, which some people said that they would be doing all the training and stuff. And then they come into training camp, like when football starts and they're not ready, you know, as you're a freshman going into CSU, at least what I remember is like you, we showed up midsummer and we started doing conditioning and all the stuff that you got to be doing to get your body ready. And it was a, it was an awakening for sure. I mean, it was like. When I was in high school, like my coaches, I was going to say, is it different than box jumps at Ponderosa? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I will give a lot of credit to what was his name, our strength and conditioning coach at Ponderosa. He brought in like a program that was very, you know, Olympic lifting esque. So it was a lot of like cleans, a lot of snatches, and so like learning the technique of a lot of that stuff is very transferable to explosive power in football. And there's not like a program in the country that doesn't take advantage of like that kind of Olympic lifting method because that's what you have to do when you're in football. Now as a quarterback, a little bit different because you're not like firing off the line, all that kind of stuff. But you have to be able to absorb, you know, certain, you know, hits that are happening that are unexpected. And I think that that kind of programming helps tremendously. When I came into CSU, there's a um, strength and 
conditioning coach that I don't know if I should name, but I was not a fan of. Um, right. And, and, you know, I just felt like the programming was not, not position specific. It was like, what, and I think that nowadays there's so much more understanding of what strength and conditioning means for each position yes in order to maximize the potential of each position it's not uniform it's no. it is literally each movement of each posi- position is it's critical to know that as a strength coach because my argument coming from another sport is a lot of the stuff i was doing in high school was cleans and things that were damaging my soft yeah. tissue yeah. as a tennis guy because i'm pound and pavement yeah right and already being bigger, I kind of had to learn by going to other resources to make it more sport specific. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to have you clarify that each position in football needs a particular oh, yeah. regimen. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, and I remember when we when when I was doing strength and conditioning at CSU, like everybody was doing the same sheet, like playing the same sheet of music, and I was like, I even kind of recognized back then. I was like, shouldn't like each position be doing their own thing? Like a wide receiver should be doing something completely different than a defensive end, but they weren't. And I was like, what's the, what's the philosophy behind this? And then I was like, I don't have time to even ask for the philosophy about this. Cause it's like, I got a full school load. I got like all that stuff started coming into play. Um, but before that, um, I did in high school get hooked up with Lauren Landau. Okay. And I want to say I was a, I think it was before my junior year. Um, Lauren was at velocity sports performance. I did my internship there. Yeah, man. And Hiker College. By yep. the old family sports complex, right? Right there. Right. Yep. I don't remember how we, I remember my dad found him somehow. Got um through I think word of mouth, like somebody saying like they went to Lauren for like speed training, running training, stuff like that. And so I went to Lauren and like instantly loved his style of coaching. Like he would tell you what to do and then he would tell you why you're doing it. Like just because it, 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 getting bought in to what you're doing, no matter what you're doing in life, like that's a that's half the battle to just believe in it. Yep. And in order to believe in it, you had to teach me why. And so Lauren was always so good at being like, "Hey, here's what we're gonna do." Even in warmups, like, "Hey, we're gonna do some quadruped series in warmups." Like, and this is what it's doing for you. Like, this is what we're focusing on. And I was like, "Man, this makes a ton of sense." Like, this is why we have to take care of our bodies. So got hooked up with Lauren early, and then. From there, that relationship started to grow. Hick, he went from there to, I don't know if he went af- immediately into Stedman. Right. Right, but he was in Stedman for a, a while. And then and then after that, it was like Landau performance stuff. Yep. And I had always stayed in touch with Landau to do um, workouts when I came home to go in. Because he, he was always doing combine stuff for guys that were going to go into the draft. So there was always a, a feel for guys that were trying to get into the NFL were always around more. I knew that if I came home, I wanted to put myself in that space to like do some of the same things and trainings that all those guys were doing and like taking care of your body and doing little things. He used to do muscle activation treatment. Yeah. Greg Roscoff. Yep. Oh yeah. And I would later in my career when I was actually playing at CSU, I, before every game, the day before I would go down, I drove down to Lando's office in dry Creek at Stedman and he would do this like MAT prep for a game. And then, those deep tissue oh, massages yeah. are no joke, no joke. man. Yeah. It was like, here's, <laughs> here's your towel to clench on and like bite on. You know, it was just like, it was intense, but it was, it worked. I mean, it was a lot of great prehab, I would call it, you know, just like 
preventative, like trying to make sure like your body's going to absorb what it's about to go through and still be okay. Um, so there was some piece of that with Lauren going into my freshman year of CSU and trying to get prepared. You know, there was a lot of get there during the summer to go through all the workouts with all the other guys, start learning the playbook. I mean, it was like, it's overwhelming. Like I'm sure the, I had no idea what the statistics are, but I'm sure the attrition from those first six months of guys that actually get into the program and start doing division one sports, it probably doesn't last that long for everybody. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's, it's awakening. I mean, just to get there, I believe the NCAA statistic for tennis is it's out of every high school tennis player, 1.6% of the participants go on to play D1. And I know football, it's, it's around the same and, it's just, it's fascinating, Grant, because, you know, here you are, you're a state champion, you, you come across one, one I believe is one of the best trainers in the country to get your body right. You, you get slapped in the face with the reality of D1 college football. But what makes your story so remarkable is the amount of time you waited mm. to get your <laughs> moment. I would love for you to walk the listeners through, yes, you were there as a freshman, but when did you take your first snap as the starting quarterback of the Rams? Mm. Yeah, I was there as a freshman. First snap was five years later. Mm. I mean, I redshirted. And I I went into a couple of games as a as a backup, like my junior year, when we were either getting killed or we were killing somebody else. And, you know, like just like the petty snaps. But – there was a lot of things that happened through the course of my career that made me question if I was in the right place. A lot of things that happened throughout that course that kept me going. You know, one of them was always, you know, it's definitely hard to walk away from a scholarship and just be like, hey, I'm going to go figure out how to pay for my own college. So there's, that was a factor, but that was a huge, not a huge factor. Um, I loved the game. I mean, I really, really wanted to play, and I was willing to work really hard for it. So I mentioned like Lauren being really, really good at explaining things without me asking. Right. Um, and I, and it put me in a position where I loved to understand the meaning behind what we were doing. And so if there was ever a moment where I wasn't sure through other coaches, I would always just ask. And maybe I didn't ask in the right ways. And maybe it felt like the way that I was asking felt confrontational but I think that you know there was certain pushback at times to be like you know almost like a parent tells his kid to do something it was because I said so just stop asking questions right you know and I, I get that now but at the time I was like I was just truly trying to understand like hey we're doing this like why can you exp- like why why is that part of it important like and it's just like why do you need to know and I'm like well I kind of would like to understand the whole scheme of this so that I can buy into it and so that I can also be somebody who's telling my guys on the field, like, hey, do you understand why we're doing it this way? Yeah. Like, I know you don't want to do it, but this is what we're doing, and I'm going to explain you why we're doing it. Like, a quarterback should be able to do that, but if I can't explain that because you can't explain that or you don't want to explain that to me, like, that creates a little bit of contention in the relationship, and that – that there was some, there was a lot of that in the first few years of um, of CSU. I mentioned like I played three years under Sonny. Sonny was awesome, you know. I mean, 
everybody has their own Sonny Lubick impression, right? I mean, like, <laughs> he's a yeah. guy, like, you gotta be a guy, you know, you gotta <laughs> yeah. be, a, you know, you know, all this. Sonny was awesome. He was the ultimate player's coach. I mean, you wanted to lay down your life for Sonny and go out there and play your life out. Late 90s, early 2000s is when Sonny had, like, immense success, right? They were going to bowl games. They were 10-win seasons. They were Van top Pelt. 20 teams. Yeah, Bradley Van Pelt and, you know, Matt Newton and um, Anthony Hill, uh, Moses Moreno, I mean, to name a few. And just, incre- like, you know, um, all the all these incredible names that went through the program, and coaches. I mean, Sonny was always there, but there was a lot of coaches that were a part of that success. And like any assistant coach, especially at CSU, like CSU is not your end all be all as an assistant coach, right? You know, I love the program to death, but you know, stepping stone. It's it's it has yeah. It's been even even as a head coach. I mean, there's like Jim McElwain that came through that had a couple of really nice seasons, and he went to go be the head coach of Florida, right? Yeah. He wants to go be in, in the SEC. Well, the Mountain West is not like winning, you know, national championships. So nothing to do with CSU, but that's just the conference they play in. And so, as an assistant coach, I think through the late 90s, early 2000s, like you get your shot to go somewhere else because you've had a lot of success in CSU and that's what you go do. So we had like, see Fairchild was one of those that he was an offensive coordinator in the late nineties, early two thousands. And he went on to go be a offensive coordinator in the NFL, the Buffalo bills for a while. Yep. A number of different coaches were in that same regard where they went on to be bigger head coaches, assistant coaches in the NFL, all that. So you saw a lot of transition throughout your time at CSU. <clears throat> that was, well, yeah, I did. Um, and I'm kind of leading into that where the backfill of those coaches with coaches that I think ultimately led to Sonny's downfall. Mm. You know, this is probably going to, you know, not be a hot topic for anybody who's listening that really like pays attention to a lot of that stuff. But, you know, Sonny surrounded himself with some guys that I think did not do him the right services. Mm. You know I mean? And those were the guys that I, like I said, I kind of had butted some heads with, you know, right. in just trying to understand the scheme of certain things, offensive or defensive, you know. And it was just like, it so it sowed a relationship between me and some of those coaches that was not beneficial for me to be able to get snaps sooner, you know. And you know, I was a stubborn kid. I was hard headed, you know. And I was an eighteen year old, nineteen year old kid, chop full of testosterone and playing this contact sport. I'm like, I, it's like I have a sense of aggression about that stage in my life where, you know, I'm sure that if, if something rubbed me the wrong way, like I'm gonna let you know it. Right. And maybe I handled those situations probably in, in a, in a poor fashion, but with, with some of my, I, I would hope that some of the 40 or 50 year old coaches that we had at the time feel the same way. I would hope that they would look back on some of those, um, some of those interactions and say, maybe we would have handled things a little bit differently. So and listen, I mean, no, no situation's perfect. No. And I think it's, it's fair to say that you were willing to tolerate some things that mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe made you scratch your head more often than not because you loved the game of football mm-hmm. and you were driven. But I mean, that moment grant where you do take the first snap, mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta have you, walk us through what that moment meant to you. And I know at the time you weren't playing for Sonny, but 
what was maybe after you tell us about that first game, what was your first interaction with Sonny after that game? Did he call to congratulate you or anything like that? I just, I, I would love for you to, to know that you weren't playing yet to then you're there. And I know it was a grind to, to even win the job that year. Mm. It was a grind. It mm. came down to like the, a couple days before the first game, I know. <laughs> but I'd love for you to speak us through that, man. Yeah. You know, my third year, I don't know exactly the conversations that would happen, but like Sonny was uh, retired. And I say that for the listeners to say, you can't see the quote unquote retired <laughs> because I think that he was somewhat forced out. I think that, you know, through list, I went to his press conference of when he said that he was leaving and it was very clear, like the back of house conversations where you gotta, you gotta get rid of some of your guys. Like you gotta replace some of these assistant coaches mm. or like, we got to say goodbye. And he wouldn't do it. He was like, I'm not, I'm not getting rid of my guys. These are my guys, you know, loyal. That's off to him for yeah. being loyal. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's something to, to applaud there. Um, but he didn't want to do it, you know, and it's at that stage in his career, he was just like, I'm not going to restart with new guys. I'm like, it's, it's me. It's either all of us or none of us. So, um, so that whole transition happened. And I would say before that, if that hadn't happened, I think if, if the transfer portal were a thing, I probably would have mm. jumped into the transfer portal after my, that would have been my red shirt sophomore year. Okay. Right before Sonny had left. Cause I was like, I don't think I can, I don't, I don't think my future's here. And I, I had a lot of questions about that. And so, um, you know, at the time you, if you were going to transfer, you had to take a year of eligibility away. And all of a sudden now you're a senior and you don't know, you know, so I was like, I'm going to bite the bullet right now. And then all that happened. And it was like, okay, now there's a new sense of excitement. It's almost like we're freshmen going into a new mm. program. Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the guy? Mm. And, and I kind of ironically, like I really wanted it to be Steve Fairchild because he was like NFL coach knew like used to be a part of a lot of that success in the late nineties and early two thousands at CSU and then, and, and it ended up being Steve Fairchild. And I remember the first offensive coordinating meeting that we had. He was the head coach, but he was very offensive-minded. And he was previously a quarterback coach. It was like you had three, you know, three-headed dragon in your room. You had the head coach, you had the offensive coordinator, and a quarterback coach all rolled into one person. Now, they had an offensive coordinator that was a different name, and they had a quarterback coach, but – the trump card was Steve Fairchild. He was the he was the guy. Right. And we went through like just watching film and going through offenses and reading defenses stuff and I was like, "Holy, cow. like this is a whole new world." He was bringing NFL type mentality to CSU and I was like, "This, let's go." I mean, I'm all about it. And at the time it was me and uh, Billy Ferris. And Billy I was Billy's backup. And there was a few other guys in the room. I know something happened between those coaches cuz they knew each other. Like Steve knew Sonny and Steve knew the rest of that whole coaching staff. And, you know, rightly so they'd go, Hey, what am I walking into? What kind of recruits do we have? What kind of kids do we have? Right. And with all the different, like, you know, headbutting that I probably had with certain guys, I don't think that my report card was that favorable. That conversation actually came out at the end of my junior year. Steve Fairchild came in, won the starting spot my junior year. We went through that whole year, which was a year in itself. But when I, when it was, Billy was then gone, I was the next up. I was like, here we go. Like I'm taking this mantle. 
Well, they went and and recruited a JUCO quarterback to come in and and compete with me, and I was like, yeah, like, okay, like you guys don't. What I heard out of that, which was unsaid, was you guys don't trust that I'm the guy, right? Right, because you're bringing in the, a guy same age to compete for this job when we have other like it's not like we don't have other quarterbacks here, no. But it was like there was a legitimate fight for the starting spot and i i had and at the time again i'm 20 year old kid 21 year old kid i had resentment to that juco transfer and he did nothing right it was just like coming and trying and look for an opportunity but i was like i butted heads with him so much you know mm. and i wish i hadn't i wish i had a little bit more of a emotional maturity to handle that a little bit differently now but we battled a lot and I was just like, all right, like you make one even teensy little mistake. It's like, okay, send them in other one, get on, yeah, go away. And I was like, man, this is, this, so this you is felt not like my you, job. You were just, you were just on, you're threading the needle. Oh my gosh. On eggshells. Yeah. On eggshells. And even when it was like, I had a week's worth of really good practices and it was clear that I was number one. It was like, have a press release, like put it out there that I'm the guy. And this was like months before CU, right? And yeah. so, but it didn't happen. And then it was like literally a week before, not even, not even like days before the game. And I think a little bit is some strategy from Steve Fairchild's mind of saying, I'm not going to tell CU who my starter is, even though we know. Right. But I wish he would have just like brought me aside and be like, hey, <laughs> here's my strategy. Like, I'm not going to name you, but it's you. And you know, we're going to wait until the days before the game so that they can't prepare for you. They have to prepare for both of you. And so I, I hope that that's kind of what it is. I don't know for <laughs> sure. Steve and I really haven't talked about it. Maybe I should reach out to him to see if that was the case. But yeah, uh, taking that first snap. I mean, first of all, I was, I was so nervous. More nervous than uh, backing up Dustin? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it was a, it was just a grander scale that I had, I had never. I mean, how, I mean ma- how many were in the stadium that day? I mean, that was at CU. Oh. So the other, the other thing, too, is it was a like interim contract year, like a contract negotiation year where usually like CU-CSU plays at, you know, what's now in power field. It was mile high, like when I was growing up. And, you know, that stadium would be packed with CU-CSU fans, right? And so this specific year, they could not decide on something in the contract to be able to have it again at mile high. So it was at Folsom. Mm. So we went down to CU. And the stadium was packed. I, th- I mean, how much does it hold? Like 40,000, 50,000 people, mostly black and gold. Yeah. Right? We had a sliver of green and gold that they gave <laughs> gave us. But, you know, I mean, just like home, any home field advantage, you don't want to have the other team have any home field advantage. Even if they're in-state, it was like they gave us a tiny little sliver of green and gold. And I could see, like, my family up there and everything wearing 18. Gosh, what did it mean, dude, just coming out of the tunnel and looking around and just being like – it's like, it's hard to explain. I mean, it's an overwhelming feeling. Uh, like you, you don't have any time to really be emotional about it. Cause it's like, we've, we've, we've been preparing for, we've been spending every waking moment preparing for this game. It's a business. Yeah. It's a business. Yeah. You're here to execute. You're here to do a job. Right. And if you do your job well, like we know that we can beat this team. We had a great game plan to set up. I mean, I think on that opening drive we scored, I was so nervous. I remember throwing up before the game. 
like in the, in the locker room, I was like, I just like got to get some of these nerves out. And I threw, I, I was like in the bathroom gagging myself. <laughs> I was like, I, and so after that I did feel a little bit better, but as I ran out, I was like, I can't believe I'm in this position, but I have literally no time to truly bask in it and enjoy it because it's like, all right, coin flip. Here we go. You guys get the ball first. Let's, let's do this. So, um, it was, it was, it was very surreal. I mean, I started calling, calling plays and calling the cadence on the line. And it was just like, the place was so loud. We knew it was going to be loud too. So we had a lot of like hand signals and foot signals and all these different things that we had put in to make sure like guys knew like what I was trying to say and like all this kind of stuff. And, and yeah, we marched right down the field and scored that first drive. And it, it was, what was really great was to hear the quietness of the crowd after that first drive. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> we're, this is going to be awesome. This worked out really well. Like we're ready. Yeah. Like, and I'm ready. Like I'm completing passes and throwing touchdowns. It was fun. And so, and I was just like in the moment, just living in the moment, just loving it. Mm. Yeah. And it just had to be surreal for you. One, to not only have that be your first snap after waiting five years, but two, have it be against another in-state school with your family present and really in an environment for all practical purposes. I don't know where the rivalry was at that point, but I I believe that CU for the most part has has dominated that rivalry. And mm-hmm. gosh, to have that be your first win, what was it like in the locker room afterwards? Um, it was crazy. I mean, we had known that we'd never won in Folsom. Or no, we it had been like twenty years since we had won in Folsom. It <laughs> was a long, long it was time. like yeah. And I think the last time we won was was nineteen eighty six. Before that, which was the year that I was born, and they made a like a little tie, funny little tie to that, like hey, the year that he was born is the year that we, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, but I I remember like microphones and cameras in my face afterwards, and like Woody Page, you know, yeah, yeah, Denver Post coming up and like asking me these questions. I'm like, man, you're Woody Page, <laughs> you know. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> This is cool. I was all smiles. I'm sure that there's some like like crappy YouTube footage of me like just <laughs> all smiles. I mean, just in in a in a on cloud nine. I mean, it was just a absolute highlight of my career to know that we went into Folsom and beat them handily. Like there was not a moment where we were like, maybe man, we might lose this game. It was like we we scored and then we scored and then we scored and then we intercepted and then they scored a couple times, and it was like at the end of it it was like twenty I think it was twenty four sixteen, but that it like that score represents like a much closer game than it actually was, right? Um, but afterwards it was just like all these cameras went up and like I was my phone was blowing up with text message from from guys that I hadn't heard from in years like since high school guys that were just like hey i didn't even know you were starting watched you on tv and all this kind of stuff and it was cool i mean it was it was very very cool i felt like i lived in the moment and like really really basked into that yeah it's for me again another way that we've connected is as i mentioned before hopping on is i followed all those years that you had to sit i followed Mm. the journey of some of the the folks that you were interacting with that I came across with Lauren Landau and and MAT and, you know, I'm all about the underdog story. (laughs) I am all about 
the core of a why, because I believe if you have a, a strong established why it can overcome any how, mm-hmm. and there's just not a lot of guys that have come from Parker, Colorado that have done, you know, really amazing athletic feats. And when I saw that, it, it motivated me. And at the time, because I took that gap year, I was, uh, I was in my senior year of college and playing the best tennis of my life in the best shape of my life. And it just motivated the heck out of me, man. Mm. And I know that, uh, 13 years ago, this was all going down, but what does it mean to you to know that all those hours you put in all of the, coaching carousel the 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 undermining comments the whatever it is man like what did it mean to you to know that you did it I mean to know that you were a starting division one college football player what did it truly mean to you being in that position and everything that happened throughout that whole season there was a ton of adversity that I faced before that, number one, with the coaching carousel and, like, waiting and, like, questioning. So it's just all this adversity of, like, tr- constantly trying to resort back to, like, why am I here? Like, why, why should I be doing this? Why should I care? You know, it feels like these guys don't care about me, so why should I care? You know, mm. all this stuff. And then everything that happened throughout that season as well, another, like, layer of adversity that I just, you know, you just know that a lot of people don't, get that gift and I'll say it like as a a gift because it was really tough to go through a lot of that and like my name had been dragged through press releases in the newspapers as like somebody who was like an awful quarterback like from my this is these words from my own coach right somebody who's just not not prepared or whatever it is that like he and I I look at it and I understand that he's trying he was trying to motivate me through this negative conduit because he's knows like I'm reading this stuff. So it's like, Oh, well my coach thinks I'm, you know, a piece of junk reverse psychology, reverse psychology. Like that never worked for me. I was always much more of a positive. And this is what, this is how I coach now. And this is how I try to be with my kids, like much more positive reinforcement in order to create like that really too, you know, cathartic moment of realization like you were meant to be here. And like, now I'm motivated to go do it but the adversity that I faced then and all the different coaches that I've had in the past, like has, is been a, in like people I look back with and I'm like, man, that guy was a piece of, yeah. <laughs> like he was a terrible coach. Like he was, but he was, there was an impact there that was such adversity. That was a gift because I look at some of my coworkers now and over the past 10 years that never had a sports background or n- never had anything like that happen to them. They don't handle the, the professional world in the same way, mm. right? The adaptability of just being able to handle adversity and then say, you know what? That's not a big deal. You know, we're going to be fine. We're going to get through it. No, no worries. Cause I've, I've been through some, like imagine like you made a mistake like that. Now, now the newspaper has it and they're going to just like slander what just happened and say like, man, Grant Stucker like did not get it done today at work. Like, and everybody's reading this, and you're like, man, this is this is brutal. Like, I read this thing um, the other day, and I think it's like a philosopher's quote that says, "In your 20s, you really you care about what other people think, right? You have this this big hurdle of 
you truly care about what other people think. And that's a lot of what defines you in your thirties and forties. You start to understand that like, you don't have to care about what other people think. And in your fifties, you stop caring about what other people think in your sixties. You realize that they weren't even thinking about you in the first place. And that whole trip was completely accelerated for me throughout my college career to say, you have to stop caring what other people think. Mm. You have to stop caring what's being printed in the, in the newspapers. You have to stop caring like what you even your own coaches are saying about you and just do you. And I remember I had a realization um, and we talked about uh, like our cabin um, yeah. before we started going live here. I had a really tough moment and I um, told my parents like I have to just like go to the cabin and just like unplug. Cabin is like on the western slope of Colorado. It's completely off the grid. There's no cell phone service. There's, it's, it's like there's nobody around you for probably a half a mile. And it's just like national forest space. So it's like a lot. It's a great place to just like be present, think. Yeah. Find alignment or get back in alignment. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I, look at, I look back at that now and I'm sure I, I scared the heck out of my parents because I was like, I'm just going to, I just need to go up there by myself and just think. And I'm like, I'm sure that they were like, oh, um, are you okay? Yeah. Everything all right? Like, do you need me to come with you? I'll just come. And I remember my dad like being like, "Do you, like I'll come up there and like we just I'll just go do my own thing." But and I, I had no intention of doing anything like because I was struggling of and like I'm sure that they thought like, man, I hope he doesn't hurt himself or something, you know. But is none of that entered my mind. It was truly just like I have to go think about: Do I really want to keep doing this? Um, and I came out of that like, I need to do it for me. Like, I'm not going to, I resort back to the third grade self when my parents said, you can't quit. You know, you got to finish what you started. But I had to redefine my why. And I stopped comparing myself to other people and the successes that they may or may not be having. And I was just like, I'm going to do the best I can. Prepare as much as I can. And as a 21-year-old kid, like, that was an epiphany for me. You know? Mm. And I mean, like, I feel like a lot of people just don't get that moment to truly stop caring about what other people think and just like live in their own space in their own moment, doing the best that they can no longer comparing themselves to other people and just like living life as it comes. That's a lot of what resonates with me in my college career is like just living through that adversity and, and forcing myself to redefine what's truly important to me and, and why I'm doing this. And yeah, that's, that's been something that has been a big anchor for the last 13 years, right? You know, for all the different life challenges that have been thrown at me. Yeah. And, you know, in my professional career, I've around a lot of folks that weren't former athletes and didn't uh, quite experience some of the things that we're talking about, but I think what just resonated with me with what you said is life today, your ability to overcome the blows. Mm. And it's just amazing to me how this conversation started with, you didn't like to get hit, (laughs) but here you are today, you know, 13 years removed from football. And I guarantee you probably get hit with something each and every day. If it's, no different than my life being a husband and a father of three. I mean, life has this way to humble you pretty Mm. quickly. And I just, 
think it would be really neat if you could package all of this together. And when it comes to, I mean, we're in 2023 now, and you and I both know that growing up as a high school kid today is a whole lot different than how you and I grew up. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff you're talking about with what you dealt with the media, social media is a real thing. And Mm -hmm. there's kids that are doing things that get posted and, and, and snapped and instead to where kids are trying to get off the grid to figure things out. And some of them just wave the white flag and say, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you've been able to get into coaching and give back to a game that's given you so much. And I love how the positive affirmations and the positive assurances is what you lead with Mm -hmm. because you and I both know what it's like to get into that negative mindset. And if you have a negative mindset, it's going to create a negative outcome 99.9% of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you have to galvanize yourself with positive energy, with confidence, with self-assurance because everybody or something is going to always try to take that away from you. Mm -hmm. So packaging this all up advice, would you give to either a a striving high school athlete or, you know, somebody that is going through a a tough time with, you know, career or whatever it may be based off of you sitting on a bench for five years until you got your first snap after coming off of a high school state championship and all the things you've been through. What advice would you give somebody that is trying to figure out their way? It's mm. a good question. I mean, don't be afraid to fail. So cliche, but it's so true. I mean, you learn so much more from failure than you do winning any day of the week. I mean, I've, I felt like just, you know, I look, you look, you could look back at my entire career and see, I didn't have like the greatest statistics for anything. In fact, like my statistics like weren't anything stellar and I didn't have a ton of wins, you know, especially in college. Like we went three and nine my senior year is like, wasn't a killer year. We won the first three games and then all uh, a lot of stuff started falling off the rails for a very, for a number of different reasons, but um, failure teaches you much more about yourself than, than winning. I mean, it's just, it's just so true. Like you just really, truly understand like what you, who you are and how to, how, how you're going to handle it. Right. And, you know, resiliency, I mean, that's how you build that resiliency too. And because if you think like life after sport, just like it's easy because you're no longer playing a game, it's not like, like life's not fair. Life is incredibly tough. I mean, I think 2019, my sister's daughter got diagnosed with like leukemia. Hmm. I remember where I was when at the time Sadie was two and a half years old, you know, diagnosed with leukemia. They had to flight for life her to children's hospital. Cause I mentioned they live in, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but before we started, they live in Carbondale. Okay. Yep. And, um, yeah, like you think life's going well, like all of a sudden, like you get something like that news like that, like how, it's, it's not fair. I mean, a two and a half year old getting diagnosed with blood cancer, like why? Right. Well, if you ask those questions, like you're, you're already behind on understanding, but, and I, and I think that that's, that's probably a little bit disingenuous to say, I take that back. Um, you're not going to find the answer to that question is what I mean to say. Yeah. 
you know, that moment was a huge moment for my family to say like, okay, like, how are we going to handle this? And there was, it was a massive piece of adversity that was like, our family has to get through it. And I think because, you know, my dad went through sport and my mom, you know, went through sport and my sister went through sport and my brother-in-law went through sport and every one of them like had faced some adversity at some point in time. Like the only avenue that we could take was something of positivity and not dwelling on the diagnosis. Like I think I cannot put myself in my sister's shoes, but I know that she battled with, with the why did this happen to my child? Right. Is, was there anything that I did? Cause the leukemia, like they really don't know what causes it. Right. She's, and she's like, what if it was something I did, you know, like in my sister's mind. So, um, yeah, that was a, a lot of heavy stuff out of a, a question that was probably meant to be a lot simpler, but sure. I mean, the, the advice I have for listeners is, um, Definitely, you learn a lot more from your failures than you do from your wins, and be willing to fail. Fail. Be ready to fail. Cause and and just try. Like this is a big thing that I tell my son right now. My son is six, right? And I always try to lead with positivity, and I always want to make sure that he just like puts effort into what he wants to do, and like learns how to love the journey. Yeah. You know, because the journey is if you can love the journey and like the de- like apart from the destination, like that's that is winning. Yeah, you know? I mean, I heard a quote as well. Um, it was like amateurs um, try to do what they love, but professional or professionals um, learn to love what it takes or love to something like that. <laughs> I butchered that quote. <laughs> It's like in order to be a real like professional about whatever you do, it doesn't even have to be like a professional sports player. It's just like what I do now for my career, like I love the process. Like I love the ins and outs of like what it takes to put a deal together or something like that. And it's like the winning aspect of it, like actually like inking a deal or something like that. It's, it's great, but it's like, the whole process before then is just like, I love each step of, of what it takes to do that, you know? And so even in the professional world, like you just have to love the process, right? You know, cause how many times have you gotten to something where you have a goal in mind and you get to that goal and you've achieved it and it's like five minutes of gratification. And then like What's five next? minutes afterwards you go, man, I thought this was going to last a lot longer. Right. Right. So, you know, love, love to, Learn to love the process. You know? Yeah, and the falling in love with the process, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit on failure, is if you're learning from your mistakes, is it failure? No. I mean, it's you have to define what failure is in order to truly answer that. Right? I think failure is quitting, giving up. Yes. Right? Yes. But being able to learn is essentially, you know, everything you said about taking action, trying, making something happen. Because if you're failing, but learning along the way, Mm -hmm. you're improving, you're growing, you're getting better. Mm -hmm. And that is such a tough mindset 
to teach because, you know, I'm 16 years still into high school coaching and I love giving back because it's such a important age to learn to understand that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> once you get out of, you know, high school and college and into the real world, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to have things not go your way. Right. And it's your ability to, to persevere and lean on those moments where you didn't give up or you mm. kept going that allow you to do things extraordinary. And that's what leads me to one last question for you, Grant is, I mean, here you are now, you know, husband, father, you got a, you know, beautiful extended family. And I appreciate you sharing about your sister, man. And I mean, that's a, that's a lot. And when I decided to start this podcast and I told you a little bit about the, the built to be mission, these stories are ways to help others. Mm. And if you're able to, to share it, you never know who it's going to resonate with. Right. And it comes back to just, you know, looking at your whole career, whether it's, you know, professionally in sports, as a husband or a father, what moment are you most proud of today, man? Mm. <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, I you know, there's lots that I would say I'm very proud of. I mean, obviously, like, doing some of the things that I've done in sport. I mean, like, winning a state championship is great. Beating CU in their own stadium is great. Like, those are proud moments. But I think my proudest moments recently, what it feels like anyway, is the things that not a lot of people see. And that's when, you know, moments I have with my kids that, you know, I mentioned my son is six. I have a three-year-old daughter, too. My son is all boy. I mean, he's like... (laughs) Just like he is a a Tasmanian devil, all go no quit. Like until he closes his eyes at night, like unless we force him to close his eyes at night, he just like goes and 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 just like will not stop. I don't think he walks anywhere. He runs everywhere he goes, and I love it. But at the same time, it's like it's a lot, right? And as a parent, you deal. You just like are trying to figure out how do I guide this in the right direction and focus like his energy in the right direction. And he's a really, really good kid. But moments that I'm most proud of is when like I can, I can teach him um, how to uh, like handle his emotions. Hmm. You know, like we as fathers to our sons, they're, is this, is this idea that's in our mind of like what it means to be a father to a son. And, um, you know, you're ushering somebody like this is what it means to be a man. Right. And I did not necessarily grow up in this household, but my dad was, was somebody who always looked up to, but he had a short fuse and he had a trouble controlling his emotions. I have seen, I've, I've been through what feels like a lifetime worth of adversity and have seen like the way that my dad was and then the way that I want to be with my kids and 
trying to define and almost redefine what it means to be like the man that I want him to be and being able to like have him look at me and listen to certain things that I say. And he's really truly absorbing certain things. And I'm like, Hey buddy, like it's a superpower to be able to control your emotions and like, just like find the sense of peace Yeah. to where like, if something hits you, like somebody, some outside force comes in and wrecks your world that you can look at it in the eye and say, I'm okay. What's next? Right. Like that doesn't bother me. And like, there's, there's moments in seeing him get it and he's six. Right. And when, when it really is cool, this is actually leading me to probably one of my proudest moments. I am constantly like trying to get him to regulate his emotions to say like, Hey buddy, like I know you're upset. Let's try to control this real quick and then we can talk. So let's take some deep breaths, you know, and every once in a while I'll get him to be like, and like actually use it. And, but a lot of the times he's like, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know what I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how you do this, but what, what, what happens is I won't even be in the same room, but I can listen to him and Riley, my daughter, like playing and all of a sudden something happens and Riley gets upset and she's a diva. Like she is like runs the house and she will let you know if she's upset. But Logan will go up to her and be like, hey, Riley, let's take some deep breaths. And he's six. And he's telling this three-year-old to control it. And so it's something's happening in there wow. where he's like, hey, this is what daddy taught me, and it works. And so I'm going to teach it to you too. And so that, I feel like, is a super proud moment for me where I'm like, I think I'm doing some of the right things. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's been a culmination of right. years of of – adversity and challenging moments and trying to understand how to handle it. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's a big one. Yeah. That's, I believe just is the icing on the cake for me because again, you know, knowing you growing up, knowing your story of what you've been through, watching you not give up in college was such a, impact on me and allowed me to have moments in my life where I kept going because I'm like, if he can do it, why can't I do it? And then to hear some of the nuggets on what you're teaching your son and, you know, being, being a father of three, I've had a lot of those special moments too, where I'd have to agree with you, Grant, that some of my proudest moments are when no one's watching, when life is happening and, you know, your kids are living on a legacy of perseverance that you instill in them. And then also, too, being able to, as a coach, have kids, you know, call me 10, 12 years later, ask me to, you know, come to weddings or baby showers, or I've had to unfortunately go to a few funerals. Mm -hmm. But just to know that I'm an impact, mm -hmm. you know, um, it didn't... <laughs> And it always started out that way. I was the big teddy bear, you know, trying to figure out Parker, Colorado. But now I kind of put my hat on being able to keep going and that perseverance and that testament to what you've been through and what you did as a college football player and, more importantly, as a husband and a father and as an employee and what you're doing right now is is remarkable. So, Grant Stucker, I cannot thank you enough for – 
the time today and for coming to meet me here in person to, to have a conversation and being a part of the BTB project. Thank you. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a tremendous conversation with Grant and there's so much we can learn from his story. I mean, going from a state champion as a high school football player to going on to play his dream of division one college football and having to wait year after year after year and five years later, finally getting to take his first snap and being able to be a contributor to that team, being able to do things for Colorado state football that not a lot of people have done. And it's just such an inspirational story. And I'm really excited for you as a listener as my conversation with Grant is a two-part series. This will be part one and part two, we're going to dive into what life has been like after football. A lot of things that I've seen with athletes, especially after their college experience, is it's hard for them to keep their bodies healthy, keep their mind clear and concise. And Grant and I are going to dive into some of the ways that he's been able to pay forward what he learned as a collegiate athlete to what he's doing in the business world, in his family, and in his life. So stay tuned. I appreciate you guys listening. If this episode inspire you, do me a favor, like and subscribe to the podcast. If you know somebody that would be inspired by Grant's message, Forward the podcast to them. Let them know that impossible is nothing. And it's stories like Grant's that will help inspire us and continue us to push forward. Remember, impossible is nothing. And take care. You're told I'll be a heart, temptation.